I enjoyed uh, sharing the word with you, uh, well, it's really, to me, it's just a few weeks ago, um, so much that uh, I decided I'd just preach longer this time. <laughs> Hallelujah. If you got your Bibles with you, open to uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 17 through 21. It's where we'll start. For those of you who are watching online, we trust God's going to bless you. Uh, we have several of our families at Christ the King Community Church who have not yet returned. Uh, some are senior citizens, others have pre-existing conditions. And so we're really blessed to be able, like you, to be able to live stream the message uh, that really is able to minister. I think, though, as people have returned to church, the one thing we keep hearing time and again is they miss community and they miss worship together. Don't you just love worshiping together? There's something about it. You know, Jesus in John 17, he prayed, uh, Father, that you would give them their, your glory, that they may be one even as we are one. There's, a, there's such a thing as unity and glory. And uh, we often talk about unity of doctrine or unity of purpose, but there's unity of glory. That when we come into the presence of the Lord, that we are drawn closer together as we move closer to him. And our vision for worship is based on Revelation in the, God, or in the, in the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, where they're gathered around the throne and they're, they're singing, worthy is the lamb. Well, the closer you get to the throne, the tighter you're going to become. Amen. And I don't think people are going to be wandering out in the narthex in heaven. I think they're going to be moving towards the throne, getting closer to Jesus. And that's what happens in worship. As we get closer to the Lord in worship, we actually get closer to one another. Yes. Uh, we we kind of press in together. It's shared glory. And I love shared glory in the presence of God. Uh, that's our unity. That's our first unity that we have together with all believers when we gather together in worship. Praise God. And, it, and, and that's what you miss at home. You just can't get that at home. And uh, we trust that you're blessed. Boy, but we have already been blessed. We've shared in the glory of God. Oh, and, and one other thing I wanted to mention before I get going. I told you I was going to take my time. One other thing. Is, is I heard you had a great camp this summer. The last time we were here, that was just coming up, and, and I heard that it was a fantastic camp with the young people, and uh, we were praying for that and supporting that, and we are thrilled that, that God is at work in the younger generation. Uh, we believe in a multi-generational church. Uh, God is the God of him, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and so we're going to look at Abraham this morning, but God is a multi-generational God, and God's purpose is bigger than one generation. In fact, the matter is, if our vision does not go beyond our lifespan, I'm not convinced it's God's vision. God called Abraham with a vision bigger than the lifespan of Abraham. And God's vision for his church is bigger than the lifespan of our generation. It goes to the next generation and a generation behind. And that we are a multi-generational church because God's vision is greater than any one generation. That's not even the sermon. Boy, but I'm telling you, I'm having a good time with that. Hallelujah. Well, that's why, you know, Pastor Tim, following Pastor Carol, Who's coming up behind him? I don't know which one. Hallelujah. But it's a multi-generational church, a multi-generational vision, and why we must invest in the generation behind us and the generation behind them and, and pass on the truth to the generations coming. And that is the great challenge of today. <laughs> I got to stop. But that's the great challenge of today is the divide of generations. Culturally, it's called generationalism, and it started in the beginning of the 20th century so that each generation begins to think that they're smarter than the previous generation. And so then that generation gets cut off from the previous generation, 
And, and the generation that is older thinks they're wiser than any generation that ever was. And so then they think, oh gosh, this new generation has got such a problem, they're just ruining everything. And then they are involved in the split of generations with that attitude. And so what we end up with is generational splits in the church so that a church that raises a generation loses that generation because that generation that decides we gotta do it different than this generation and let's go do it elsewhere. And it's a generational divide that happens, and that's why the church has to have a vision, a multi-generational vision, uh, for all generations to be involved. Not just the older generation ministering to the younger, but for the younger as well as the older. And this is a challenge we're facing. And it comes in all kinds of forms of traditional values versus progressive. It's how it plays itself out, but it's really a generational divide. And there is no divide in the truth between generations. We got a little catchphrase we use that we keep repeating all the time until eventually we catch hold of it. And that is that the truth is older than tradition and more modern than progressive. No matter how far back your tradition goes, the truth is further back. And no matter how forward you go in your progressive mindset, the truth is running ahead of you. It's ahead of you, it's eternal. And the younger generation and the older generation need to connect through the eternal truths of God. And we find that the younger generation does want the truth. They may not want it in the package of the words exactly like the older generation has it, but they want the truth. And the church that can pass on truth to the next generation is the church that will be a multi-generational church. It isn't a question of style, it's a question of truth. That's the real issue. And if you remember when you were a teenager, I remember when I was a teenager. And the reason I got saved is because I wanted the truth and Jesus revealed himself to me as the truth. And this generation wants the truth also. And we have to live it and demonstrate it and pass it on to them. And that's why we are vested in and prayed for your kids retreat, your camp this summer. It's because it's so vital that they have a living experience and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're gonna look at the faith of Abraham this morning. In Romans chapter four, verse 17 through 21, it says this. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope, believed that he might become the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced of what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless the word to us today. I pray that it would go forth as seed for sowing and bread for eating. I pray, God, that it would produce the effect in the harvest that you desire. That, Lord, you would encourage us in your word and strengthen our faith by the example of Abraham. I ask this, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. The uh, title of the message this morning is Grow Strong in Faith Through Test. Abraham did not start out strong in faith. That's one of the challenges we face in reading the New Testament. In the New Testament, we, sometimes we get the end product of their life story that's in the Old Testament. And we read these great statements like what I just read about Abraham not growing weak, but growing strong in faith. And now he did not waver at the promise of God, even though he considered the deadness of his own body and the deadness of, of Sarah's womb. But so we see the outcome of his faith and we have these examples that are like up on a pedestal and we realize I'm not there. And you can lose sight of the fact that they didn't start there. Romans chapter 4, verse 20, in the English Standard Version says he grew strong in faith. 
He didn't start strong in faith. He grew strong in faith. Now, to grow strong requires resistance. And resistance training for faith will involve tests in your life, trials, going through valleys. I got saved in 1971, and when I got saved, I really got saved. I mean, I got so saved, I was enjoying being saved. People looked at my face, they go, you got saved. There was just joy in my salvation. And I'm growing to this meeting in this area in the greater St. Louis area called Valley Park. It's a little subdivision area. And in this place called Valley Park, we had a charismatic gathering on Monday evenings that I went to. And it was mostly more older saints than myself. And I would hear them talking about going through valleys in their faith and how as they walked through the valley, the, the, the struggles caused their faith to grow. And so I went to the guy who was in charge of working with the young adults. His name was Hans. And I went to Hans and I said, I want you to pray for me to go through a valley. I said, I'm just having too much fun. It's just so full of joy. And, and, and I keep hearing these people talk about going through the valleys and how their faith grows in the valley. I want my faith to grow, Hans. Pray for me to go through the valley. Hans <laughs> very wisely said that uh, I'll have enough time in my life for valleys. Right now, enjoy the, the joy of the Lord. But a valley is a place you do grow in. Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. When you're going through a valley... You really hang on close to your shepherd, don't you? Though I walk through the valley, you are with me. He leads us through valleys. And in the valleys, our faith is tested and it grows stronger. Linda and I have walked through some valleys. But I know those who have walked through valleys deeper and longer than anything that I've walked through. I know those who have lost their jobs, then lost their homes, but kept their faith. I know spouses whose husband left them to raise the kids alone, and they chose to walk with God and raise those kids. I know those whose lifelong spouse forgot who they were because of Alzheimer's while they continue to remember their spouse in prayer. I know young couples who lost their first two children to miscarriage but didn't lose their faith in the giver of life. One day Linda and I are standing at the head of a prayer line praying for people and we looked up and here we're standing coming toward us as Neil and Rita. They had lost two children. And you know what they want a prayer for? They have a child. We prayed for them. They now have two children Amen. here and two in heaven. How hard was it for them to get back in that prayer line? I know parents whose children have lost their faith. Well, those parents always find time to show the unconditional love of God to their children. These are some deep and long valleys I know people who have walked through. Many of these people are in the church, Christ the King Church in St. Louis with us. These are the kind of people in our church. People of real proven faith. They've walked it. They've gone through trials. They've held their faith in the midst of adversity. And their faith has come out stronger. I also have known some who hit a little dip in the road and wonder why God let this happen to me. A trial is what happens to you. The test is how you respond to it. To grow in faith, you're going to have to pass through trials. I didn't say that you have to pass the test of faith. I said you have to pass through the trial. 
It's possible to fail the test of faith and still grow. Hallelujah for that. It's like the English exam I took in high school. <laughs> I think most everyone in class did poorly on the exam. I probably did exceptionally poorly on the exam. <laughs> the teacher wasn't happy, and she was talking to the class, and she said, well, sometimes you can learn more from what the mistakes you made. And I felt I learned a lot from that test. <laughs> I failed that test, but I learned a lot. Peter failed his test of faith, but his faith didn't fail. You know the story. Peter, you're going to deny me. No, I won't deny you. And Jesus said, well, I've, I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Peter failed the test, but his faith did not fail. He grew through the test even though he failed it. Peter learned a lot through his failure that made him a success in his faith. Later, he would write this. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire. He knew what a test of fire was. It may be found to the praise, the honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though he failed the test, his faith grew strong. So when I say you're going to walk through a test, that you're going to pass through it, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to pass the test. Okay. <laughs> it just means you have to keep walking. <laughs> it's fall forward. Get up and fall forward. It's get up and fall forward. You're still moving forward in your faith. Abraham's faith grew strong through test. I want to look at three tests of Abraham. <laughs> Two of the three he failed. But even in his failures, his faith grew stronger. The three tests of Abraham that I want to look at this morning are the test of famine, strife, and delay. These were tests that Abraham passed through before he got to the final exam where he offers Isaac. Now we read the test of Abraham and offering up of Isaac. That's the final exam. He passed that with shining colors. But these three tests were what led him up to growing strong in his faith. And he didn't pass all three of these, but he grew strong through these tests. The first test he faced is famine. In Genesis 12, it says this. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans to come into the promised land. Ur of the Chaldeans was like a subdivision. It was a developed town. It was eight miles from a town called Eridu, which is considered to be the oldest city in the history of humankind. So Ur was just eight miles from there. It was in the Persian Gulf Basin. It was, it was from the oldest civilization. The Sumerians, the first people to write. And they developed aqueduct systems for irrigation. They had a sewer system in Ur. They had walls around the town, and they had nice little homes you could get there, kind of like a little three-bedroom ranch in one of the American subdivisions. <laughs> we don't think of where they came from, but that's where they came from, Ur of the Chaldeans. And they were living their life there in Ur when the Bible says the God of glory appeared to Abram and said, come out from among your people and your homeland into where I will show you, bring you into the promised land. And so he packs up Sarah and the family. His nephew Lot comes along. His dad comes along. 
more of a caravan than just those two going on a trip. And they go out of there to Haran, and then they come on down to the land of Canaan. It was several hundred mile journey. They get into the promised land, and I don't know what they were expecting, but I don't think they were expecting famine. And I don't know what kind of conversations Abraham and Sarah had, but I can just imagine her looking at him. <laughs> you got me out of Ur and out of my kitchen in Ur for this, a tent in this land that's a famine. They come into the promised land. They probably expect it's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey, but there's not enough resource there to sustain them in the promised land. This is a test. Famine is a test. It's when there's not enough to sustain you in what God has promised and called you to do. Now, there is a myth that we have in our imaginations that says if God's in it, it will all just come together. And we say that where God leads, God provides. And it's true, but the test is, is between the leading and the providing is famine. And I've always found, and maybe my experience is backwards. Sometimes I think I'm the backwards Christian. Okay, maybe my experience is backwards. I've always found that God it leads me beyond my resources. In 1985, I was pastoring a small church in North St. Louis County called Faith Fellowship. We'd only been there a couple years, but I felt God calling us to leave there and, and, and start this church. And I remember the night I resigned. I turned my resignation into the elders. I came home. We had a little three-bedroom brick home. And I walked up the driveway, and I stopped, and I put my hand on the brick. And the thoughts in my mind, I just resigned my job, my income. And I'm thinking, I have a $600 a month house payment and we have $500 in savings. I have a wife and two children inside this home. And so I stopped and I put my hand on the brick and I said, Lord, you're just gonna have to make the house payment. <laughs> and went inside. <laughs> Hallelujah. God provided. Oh, sometimes that provision would come in the mail. It would be a check unexpected from unexpected sources. There were times there was cash in envelopes. It is an amazing thing. Uh, my wife, Linda, does our checkbook. And so when anything came in, the first thing she did is she would write 10% tithe off of it before we made our house payment or anything else. And by end of each month, God came through meeting all of our needs. And it was training ground for us to trust God for the financial resources for our life and then for the life of the church that we're now leading. Where God leads, he will provide. But before you get to that provision, he's going to lead you into something that takes you beyond your resources. Now, let me give you a warning here. And the warning is this. Don't think like a Cheyenne contrary warrior. Maybe you've never heard of a contrary warrior, but a contrary warrior rides backwards on the horse. They sit backwards. They say hello when they mean goodbye. They say up when they mean down. Forward when they mean backwards. Everything is in reverse. Now, as Christians, we cannot think as contrary warriors. And what I mean by that is this. Don't think that because we don't have the resources, God must be in it. That's backwards. Realize that if God is in it, he's going to lead you beyond your resources. But just because it's beyond your resources doesn't mean God's in it. See, I've found Christians get in trouble sometimes because of the 
contrary warrior mentality that says this must be God because there's no other way it could ever happen. And they go out on a limb beyond where their faith is with that backwards thinking when what we really need to resolve is one and only one thing. Is God leading you? Before I resigned, I struggled with the decision to resign for three months, actually maybe longer. I can remember conversations with God. I would go for walks at lunch. I would leave my office in the church and I'd walk around the neighborhood and, and I would be talking to the Lord and I would say things like, why can't I be happy here? What's wrong with me? Dear God, I should fit here. Uh, it, it should be the right place for me. They don't want me to leave, they, they love me. They want me to stay. But I just know, Lord, you're leading me to do something else and I don't fit here. What's wrong with me, God? Why? Why? How come I don't fit? After about three months of these conversations, I had no other choice but to leave. I knew God was directing me. Make sure God's in it. If God is in it, he has resources that you know not of. And once you've touched those resources and you know how to tap into them by faith, that frees you thereafter. Abraham failed this test. There's famine in their land. There's not enough resources here. Let's go on while we're traveling. Let's just go on down to Egypt, honey. What do you think? And they go on down to Egypt. And he leaves the promised land. He fails the test going to Egypt. But then he comes back, comes right back to the place where he left. It was an altar place between towns of Bethel and Ai. The very first place he began to call upon the Lord, and he went down from there into Egypt, and then he spends some time in Egypt, gets rebuked, comes back to the same spot. I don't know if you've ever felt like you're back at the same spot. Well, you might be. And it might be the Lord bringing you back to learn the lesson of faith. And God brought Abraham right back to the same spot. And though he failed the test, I think he succeeded in that failure by growing in his faith. Because later, when the king of Sodom offers to make him rich, Abraham would say, I've lifted up my hand to the Lord God, the possessor of heaven and earth. I'll take nothing from you lest you say you made Abraham rich. He had learned to trust God. Sometimes we fail at that at first, but we got to get it right. The test of famine is the test of God leading you beyond your resources. And you then having to learn to trust him by lifting up your hand to the Lord God, the possessor of heaven and earth, and he will supply for you. God has come through for us. At one point, we got down to our last $3, and we've been going up ever since. Hallelujah. And God has blessed our church. And because our faith was strong, God keeps us free as leaders to not even put it into the back of our mind, what financial effect will this decision have on the church? I am so confident that if everyone stopped giving, God would rain down blessings straight from heaven for that church because it's there by the will of God, Amen. period. God does supply, but he'll take you through the test of famine before you get there. Abraham went through that test, and now his faith is strong. The second test he goes through is strife. In Genesis 13, verse 7, it says this, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Lot's his nephew, his brother's son. Lot wasn't called. Abram was called. Lot came along for the ride, and he's getting on on the blessing. Lot's getting in on the blessing so much that his flocks and herds are multiplying, just like Abraham's flocks and herds are multiplying. And the herdsmen are now competing for the good grass to feed the flocks with. And there's strife between Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen. 
See, famine tested whether Abraham would stay in the land. Strife tested whether he would trust God to give him the land. Abram could have gone to Lot and said, listen, God called me, not you. You've come along and you've gotten in on this blessing and I'm, I'm happy about it. And I'm just thrilled that you got in on this. But now it's grown to the point where you're holding back my flocks and I'm the one with the promise. You're holding back my flocks from feeding on that land and, and, and so you need to move along. He could have done that, could have approached it that way, but he doesn't do that. Abram passes this test with shining colors. He goes to Lot and he says to Lot, the land is before you, you choose. The land was promised to Abraham, not to Lot. Abraham couldn't say this to Lot unless Abraham was totally confident that God was going to give him the land. He didn't have to fight Lot for it. I don't have to fight with my brothers to get the promise of God from my life. So he goes to Lot and he says, you choose. You go left, I go right. You go north, I go south. You choose. This is great faith. You see, some people know the God, know the promise of God, but they don't know the God of the promise. Abraham has the promise of God, and he also knows the God of the promise. And he is confident. God has called me. God has promised me. God's going to give me the land. You choose. Just don't let there be strife. We don't need to strive. Too much strife among brethren. Don't let there be strife. So Abram, Lot, you choose. Lot looks around and he picks the best land, the well-watered plains of the Jordan, it says. That's where the good grassland is. He picks that as where he's going to go. And of course, that was before <laughs> it was fire and brimstone rained down from heaven on it, okay, and it became scorched earth, but it was well-watered plains of Jordan at that time. He made a decision based on his own carnal reasoning. He took the best for himself. Wow. But Abram's not put off by this. So important, this test. Here's Lot taking the best portion for himself, blocking Abraham from access to that best portion, and Abraham's okay with this because he's trusting God. Who's blocking you? Who's blocking you in your career? Who's blocking you at church? Who's blocking you? In your mind, do you say if so-and-so had done this or not done that, things would be different? The person who knows the God of the promise knows that God is going to fulfill the promise in their life. Amen. Abraham wasn't concerned about Lot blocking him. He said, you choose. Lot leaves. Now, God appears to Abram again, and this is what he says to him in Genesis 13. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. After Lot had separated from him. God now has his man, Abraham, where he wants him. He had called him out of Ur, leave your family, leave your land. His father, his nephew, bunches of folks come along, and now it's just 
Abraham. Now Lot's gone. Abram's father has passed away. It's now just Abraham. And God says to Abraham, look northward, southward, eastward, westward, whatever direction. It's all yours. And your descendants. This is the first promise of an offspring. Sometimes people leave. The reason for leaving may be carnal even as it was with Lot. But it's all designed by God to get you in the land. It's God's purpose. God isn't concerned about the number count. He's concerned about what's reproducing. It's when he gets Abram where he can now reproduce. Now, Abram, you are in the land. Now I'm going to extend the promise to your descendants. We've pastored Christ the King Community Church from its beginnings in 1985. We went through seasons where people left for various reasons, some not so good reasons, and some were excellent reasons. Some got better career jobs. They moved out of town. I swear there was a time where Indiana was targeting us. <laughs> we lost so many wonderful people to Indiana, job promotions. Oh, people we also sent out to start another work. In a six-month period of time, we had 40% of the church go. For various reasons. God used it to bring us to the point now where he could reproduce what we have now become. God uses it. God will even use strife. People leave over strife. God used it in Abram's life. God has a purpose, and his purpose is multiplication. I'm going to give the land to you, Abram. There's nothing new there. That's reaffirming the promise. And to your descendants, now we're ready to multiply. I've got you where I want you. God has you where he wants you. He has you, this church, where he wants you for multiplication purposes. Abraham passed this test with shining colors. Passed the test. Trust God. Trust the God of the promise. He's given promise to this church. Trust the God of the promise. Pass the test. Abraham does with shining colors. It's, I think, one of the high points of his life when he goes to Lot and says, you choose. And, and you know what's even gr greater? This it's, it's isn't one I want to talk about, but I just can't help but mention it. No sooner does Lot go and pick the best for himself, and you know what happened? There's a war, and Lot's taken captive. You know the story. How many would be tempted to say, serves them right? Huh? I knew God was going to get them. And you know what Abram does? He goes and rescues his brother. There's a lesson in that. It shows how good Abram's heart is, doesn't it? Wow. A plus on this test, Abram. Hallelujah. <laughs> he failed the first. He gets an A plus on the second, and he fails the third, but he comes through. The third test is delay. It's a, I've combined two verses together because you've got to tell so much of the story to get this picture with Abram and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael. You almost have to have a Sunday school class to put all these details together. But the gist of the story is Sarah can't have children, and she goes to Abram, 
And she says, the Lord has restrained me from having children. It's in Genesis 16, 1. And she comes up with the idea of Hagar, her handmaiden, and Abram having a child. And they have Ishmael. Twelve years pass, and God appears to Abram again. This time, Abraham is 99 years old, and God appears to him and says, this time next year, Sarah's going to have a child. <laughs> and says to Abram, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. So now we've gone 12 years, it'll be 13 years when Abram's 100 years old when Isaac is born. From the time that they came up with the idea of having Ishmael. But what had happened is God had promised them the descendants, and they hadn't come. And you know the story of one time Abram goes out and God says, count the stars, count the sand on the seashore, so shall your descendants be. And, and it didn't happen, and it didn't happen, and it didn't happen. And, and finally, Sarah says, well, the Lord has restrained me from having children. She misunderstands. She thinks God's delays is God's denial. God's delays are not God's denial. It's just God doesn't work on our time scale. See, what we call delay, God calls preparation. And God will take years to prepare a person for a moment in time. John the Baptist was 30 years on the backside of the wilderness. He comes out of the wilderness as the prophet, nine months of ministry. 30 years preparation for nine months of ministry. Boy, but he's had an eternal impact, hasn't he? God will take years to prepare for something and then move suddenly as though he's in a rush. On the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, it says, and when the day of Pentecost had fully come. Well, this was the 1500th day of Pentecost. They've been doing the day of Pentecost for 1500 years since the time of Moses. And so now he fully comes and all of a sudden, a rusty mighty wind. He's in a rush. If you thought about the second coming, Jesus said, behold, I come quickly. We always think that means soon. I think it's describing the manner of the coming. When the harvest reaches its fullness, he will send forth his angels to reap, and then he will come as lightning from the east to the west quickly. He's in a rush, but not till then. We don't think like God thinks. When it comes to time, we, we want it done now. And we talk about God being a multi-generational God, but we just want it done in our generation. What happens if my generation is preparation for the next generation? What happens if the greatest fruitfulness of my ministry is not going to happen until after I'm dead? It's true with Paul the Apostle. At the end of his life, all those in Asia have forsaken me. Demas has forsaken me. None are faithful except for Timothy. These are things Paul wrote near the end of his life. Would Paul have ever imagined that his reach of ministry would extend to Louisville after he's dead? We think it has to happen in our generation. Wow. God's delays are not denials. But I tell you what delay will do. It will put you under the test to try to make it happen. Oh, I've seen so many people try to make things happen. Sing louder, sing faster, pump them up better. Make it happen. Jump higher when you preach. Get your veins popping, make it happen. I've seen that. I've even seen people in a prayer line where others were falling down, slain in the spirit. Another person come to pray for them, and someone else comes up behind them, and with their knee, they just hit the back of their knee, and then they go down. Make it happen. 
How much of the marketing techniques make it happen? How much do we do that has to do with make it happen versus trusting God to make it happen? That our role is to be prepared for when it happens. Let's prepare our hearts for it to happen because we can't make it happen. But if our hearts are prepared when it is happening, we can respond to God. Often we try to make the Holy Spirit move. One of my favorite verses on the Holy Spirit is in Genesis 1. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. It's like a Hebrew word of a fluttering, a wings of a bird fluttering. This is not in the Hebrew. This is my made-up explanation. It's like a hyperactive child in the room. Even when they're not moving, you feel their presence. This is the Holy Spirit. He's portrayed. He is ready to make it happen. He's ready to move. He's moving. And the Spirit of God is moving over face of the deep. We're introduced to the Spirit of God is moving, but we talk about having to get the Spirit to move. Let's pray for the Spirit to move. And the Spirit said, would you pray for you to move with me? You got the wrong prayer request. Delay will rise up in you that pressure to make it happen. And Sarah goes to Abram and says, make it happen. And they made it happen. And then they got to live with it. For 13 years, let me rephrase that, for 12 years, God did not talk to Abraham. I'm not saying God was pouting. I'm saying that God will let you live with what you create. Sarah says, go into Hagar. Abram is 87 at this time. So he has Ishmael. Nothing said in the scripture of a conversation between Abram and God until he's 99. 12 years of silence. And God appears to him again and said, oh, by the way, I haven't forgotten. This time next year, Sarah is going to bear you a son. And there's a great story in Genesis 17 that's so often forgotten because in, in, in Genesis 18, I think it is, when God says this, Sarah laughs. You know the story, Sarah laughed. I'll, guys, no one knows this. I shouldn't tell them. But Abraham laughed first. It's in Genesis 17. God comes to Abram when he's 99 and says, now Sarah is going to bear you a son. Abram laughs, and you know what Abram says? Oh, that just let Ishmael live before you. You know what he's saying? I give up. Just bless Ishmael. Just bless Ishmael. And God said to Abram, no. Sarah's going to bear you a son. Now I'll go ahead and bless Ishmael. He'll have some princes. But Sarah's going to bear you a son. You see, Abraham had given up. There's something in this that is beyond us that maybe only leaders and those carrying the burden of this church can fully understand. And hey, maybe that's all of you in this room. There can come times where you want to give up and God says no. God says, no, because my purpose is for it to go on. I want it to bear fruit. And God then renewed Abraham in the vision. Delay brings to the surface what's in your heart. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to give up. God will have none of it. He wants all that out of us so that when it does happen, he gets the glory. Who gets the glory for Isaac? God. It was his idea, Isaac. God was the one who gave him the power to conceive. Isaac's the promise. It's all to the glory of God. The future of this church is to the glory of God. When it goes beyond you, it's to the glory of God. When you say, ah, and think about it, glory of God. All to the glory of God. 
Abraham, <laughs> he failed this test, but then he got it right later. He had to come to faith to believe for Sarah. God didn't quit on Abraham. But Abraham grew strong in faith because God put a hook in him and is reeling him forward. See, I think when God appeared to him, it said the God of glory appeared to Abram in Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur, uh, Ur worshipped the moon god. That was the local deity of Ur. And the God of glory appeared to Abram, and I think that put a hook in him. You know what I mean by that? God have a hook in you <laughs> where you can't. He's, got, he, he's called you. He's put his touch of glory on your life. And he's, he's got, he just keeps pulling you forward. He's, all right? That's what he does with Abraham. So when Abraham fails, well, we'll just keep reeling him in a little further. <laughs> Abraham succeeds. Well done. We'll reel him in a little further. Delay 12 years. We'll just let him live with it for a while. Then I'll, <laughs> I'll appear to him again, and we'll reel him in a little further. Each time his faith is growing. God called him, caused his faith to rise up what God had for him and your, your descendants will be as the stars is one kid one promised child but that one promised child would have promised child and that child would have problem child of 12 child and 70 then 2 million of them down in Egypt multiplying all over God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His plans are bigger than our lifespan. Our faith has to rise to the level of resurrection. That's where his faith rose to. God who calls things that are not as though they are, who gives life beyond what is natural. That's how his faith was described in Romans 4. Paul is describing the mature, full-grown faith of Abraham. I'm just talking about how he grew to that point. We have to grow strong in faith. We may not be there. You may be in the midst of one of these trials right now. You may be in a situation of famine. God's led you into something, but you don't have enough resources to get it done. You might be in a situation of strife. You have to let it go. Let there be no strife between you and others. Let others choose and be blessed. You might be in the test of delay where God just doesn't work as fast as you'd like. Well, I have a verse for you before we pray. It's in James chapter 1. It says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. People who walk through tests come out stronger, and they end up lacking in nothing.